Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Ancient Greece. Chapter 40. Greeks Being Clever. Part 1. We're going to take a little break from our story of the Greeks fighting amongst themselves. The last few chapters seem to have shown us that the Greeks spent all of their lives battling and probably didn't have much time left over for other things. This is not the case. The ancient Greeks produced great literature and art, made great discoveries in science and maths. Later on in our journey, we will look at some of the great mathematicians. In this chapter, we will meet some of the most famous of the clever Greeks, people who thought about things and debated them and tried to find the answers to the most important questions of life. These people were called philosophers. There is already an excellent podcast on the history of philosophy, called The History of Philosophy with No Gaps, by Peter Adamson. This chapter of our story will be slightly different. It is dipping the toe in the waters of philosophy with lots of gaps. If you want to learn more, please do find The History of Philosophy with No Gaps and listen to it. It really is very good. Philosophy is a Greek word. It means love of wisdom. It is the study of all of the general problems of life, such as why do things exist and what are things made of, and even how should we behave. The very early Greek philosophers wanted to know how the world worked and what it was made of. Much of what they thought about was what we would now call science. Some tried to do experiments to test their theories. They didn't have the equipment or knowledge to do proper experiments though, so they had to think about things and make guesses. One of the very first philosophers that we know about was from the Greek city of Miletus in Ionia. His name was Thales and he was born in 624 BC. Before Thales, most Greeks thought that everything that existed and everything that happened was created or caused by the gods. Thales decided that this wasn't the case and everything actually had natural causes. The Greeks had thought that earthquakes were caused by the wrath of the gods. Thales declared this was wrong. The earth, he said, floated on water. Earthquakes simply happened when there were big waves that made it shake. Thales is most famous for stating that everything in the world was made from water. Trees, animals, rocks and even humans were all made from water. He said that everything came into being from water and everything eventually returned to water. He wasn't too clear on how water came to make everything and he didn't really explain how it turned into other things. Another man from Miletus, called Anaximander, decided that Thales was wrong about the water business. He said that everything came from something strange and indescribable called Apiron. From Apiron came the four elements, earth, air, fire and water, and that everything else was made up from these things. The theory that everything was made from these four elements was quite common in ancient Greece. It was thought that different things had different amounts of each element. Maybe a tree would be four parts earth to three parts fire to one part water. Perhaps a cat was five parts fire to one part earth, one part water and two parts air. Anaximander also thought that the earth was a huge cylinder and that people lived on the top, flat surface. He was the first person who said the sun and the moon revolved around the earth. As we now know, he was wrong about this, but this thinking was amazing at the time. It meant that the sun which rose each morning was the same one that had set the night before. It wasn't simply Helios carrying a ball of fire across the sky as the Greeks had believed for centuries. 
The philosophers that we've described so far all thought there must be some things which never changed. That's why they tried to work out what things were made of. They thought that there must be something that couldn't be altered. These were the building blocks for everything. Dogs, cats, apples, stones, trees and everything else. Now, philosophers like two things more than anything else. They like to think about stuff and they like to disagree with each other. It was certain then that somebody would have a different view. Heraclitus was from Ephesus. He said that it was rubbish that everything was made up of things that don't change. Instead, said Heraclitus, things were always changing. As soon as anything happened to anything, it was changed. He tried to explain it by talking about a river, because everyone knew what a river looked like. A river, he said, is always flowing. If you step into a river one day, and then step into the river at the same place the following day, are you stepping into the same river? No, said Heraclitus, it was a different river, because the water was different. What do you think? Of course, there was someone who thought that Heraclitus was wrong. Parmenides was so convinced that nothing ever changed that he argued that anything that looked like change wasn't real. It was all imagination. What he meant was that you can't rely on what you see or hear or feel. It might not be real. It is only possible to know what's true by thinking about it and working it all out. This sounds a bit nuts, but a student of Parmenides took it even further. He tried to prove that things you see happening don't really happen. Zeno of Elia wanted to show that his old teacher was right, and he thought he'd found a way of doing it. He came up with a whole load of scenarios which he thought proved that what you see is not necessarily what you get. Let's have a look at a couple of them. Zeno asks us to imagine Achilles racing against a tortoise. Generous old Achilles has given the tortoise a 1,000 metre head start. The race starts. Achilles quickly hits his stride and covers the 1,000 metres to where the tortoise started. During this time, the tortoise has moved 10 metres. Speedy old Achilles quickly covers the 10 metres, but the tortoise has moved on another 100 centimetres in this time. Each time Achilles reaches the place where the tortoise was, the tortoise has moved forward a little more. Therefore, Achilles can never catch the tortoise. Zeno also asks us to imagine trying to walk from one place to another. Let's say you're walking to the shop, which is 200 metres away. You can see the shop and you set off, but you can never get there. Why? Well, if you want to get to the shop, first you have to get halfway there, which is 100 metres. If you want to get from this point to the shop, then first you have to go halfway, which is another 50 metres. If you want to get to the shop from this point, then first you have to go halfway, which is another 25 metres. It takes time to travel each of these distances. If you keep travelling halfway, no matter how little time it takes, you can never get to the shop. What do you think? Was Zeno right? Of course, our experience tells us that he was wrong. But that was the whole point of these paradoxes which he created. All this making up arguments to prove something that everyone can see isn't true was taken a bit further by a group of philosophers called the Sophists. The Sophists were great speakers and used words very well. They were employed to teach the children of noble people how to speak in public and how to argue successfully and were often very well paid. The Sophists were different from Parmenides and Zeno though. 
At least Parmenides and Zeno believed that they were right about things not being as they seemed. The sophists were not always too bothered about whether they were right as long as they won the argument. Some of them even claimed to know the answers to all questions. Into the world of the sophists strode one of the most famous philosophers who ever lived. This man did not like the sophists at all. He didn't like it that they claimed they knew everything. He didn't like it they liked to win every argument, and he especially didn't like it that they got paid lots of money for their teaching. This man's name was Socrates. Socrates was from a working family, not from the aristocracy. His father was a stonecutter. He probably learned his father's trade, and nobody is quite sure how he ended up as a philosopher. What is known is that he was called up to join the army and fight for Athens in the Peloponnesian War. He fought as a hoplite in three campaigns, and was known to have saved the life of Alcibiades while fighting at Potidae. He was a courageous and fearless soldier. He was also said to be very ugly with a snub nose and bulging eyes. By some time in the 420s BC, Socrates was on the streets of Athens being a philosopher. He was very different from those that came before him, though, because he didn't claim that he knew anything. He didn't try to say he had the answers to any of the questions he asked. Instead, he just asked questions, and then, when people came up with answers, quizzed them on why they had given that answer. This caused a bit of a problem for those who have tried to find out what Socrates thought about anything. The problem is made worse by the fact that Socrates never wrote anything down. Everything we know about him comes from things written down by his followers, one in particular. What Socrates did was this. He wanted to know the answers to difficult questions, so he wandered round the Agora in Athens asking them. He thought it would be great to have lots of people discuss the questions together so they might come up with more ideas. He sidled up to people in the Agora and asked them things like, What is wisdom? What is beauty? And other things like that. Sometimes the people just said they were busy, but sometimes they would try to answer him. Then Socrates would try to teach them to think better by asking them more questions which showed them the problems in their logic. Sometimes people took it well, and sometimes it made busy people angry. Sometimes they talked to him, sometimes they punched him. Mostly, though, the people loved Socrates. Many people hung around him and listened to him and learned. Socrates, who really hated the sophists, made a point of not asking for any money. The way Socrates taught by asking questions is now called the Socratic method. Socrates was not popular with the authorities. He lived during the time when Athens fell from being the most important place in Greece to defeat in the Peloponnesian War. In 399 BC, he was accused of corrupting the young men of Athens and not worshipping the gods that the Athenians worshipped. He was found guilty, but the punishment was not decided straight away. Socrates had a chance to suggest his own punishment. It was likely that he'd be condemned to death, but he might have got away with exile if he'd asked nicely. Unfortunately, Socrates asked that his punishment be that the Athenian government paid him for his teaching services and gave him free dinners for life. The court was not amused, and Socrates was condemned to death. Socrates wasn't afraid to die, and drank the poison without complaining. It is, he had, it is said that he spoke his last words to his friend Crito. Crito, he said, I owe Asclepius a chicken. Please don't forget to pay the debt. One of the pupils of Socrates was determined to carry on his work. 
A young man called Plato had been one of the great man's closest followers, and he wanted to ensure that Socrates and his teachings lived on. Unlike Socrates, Plato was born into a rich family, probably in about 428 BC. He was still a young man when Socrates died. He began to write down as many of the things that Socrates said that he could remember. Pretty much everything we know today about Socrates comes from the writings of Plato. Like Socrates, Plato fought for Athens during the Peloponnesian War. After his master died, he spent twelve years travelling in Italy and Egypt, where he studied mathematics, astronomy, religion and many other subjects. He then returned to Athens determined to build somewhere where people could think, study and learn. In 385 BC, he opened his academy. It was not like a school or university we know today. Most of the learning was done by people talking and debating. There were no real teachers. Plato's academy stayed open for over 900 years. It was finally closed in 529 AD by the Roman Emperor Justinian because it was considered to be unchristian. Plato spent the last 40 years of his life running his academy, being philosopher philosophical and writing down his ideas. Plato wrote about many things, but we will only look at a few of the most important. Plato wrote an important book about government called The Republic. The great man wasn't too keen on democracy, mostly because he considered most people to be too stupid to be allowed to have any say over who was in charge. It would be much better if the very best people were in charge. These people should be full of wisdom and be rational and make good decisions. In fact, shockingly enough, Plato thought the rulers should be philosophers. He called these leaders philosopher kings. There would be a few of them, not just one, and they'd make all the decisions. The rest of the people would then be split into two other classes. First, there would be those who fight in the army and were brave, adventurous and strong. These he called the guardians. Then there was everyone else. These people would do the actual war work. Plato was quite keen on dividing things into threes. He decided that every person's soul was divided into three parts, each of which had an effect on how he or she behaved. Reason was the most important part. This part was responsible for thinking. It was the part of the soul that wanted knowledge and education and could think things through and then make good decisions. Appetite was the part of the soul which controlled the need to eat and sleep and do other things we know we need to do without having to think about them. The third and last part of the soul was very important. It was the part that controlled spirit or passion. The spirit gave people the will to take actions and the wish to do what is right and not do what is wrong. Plato said the three parts of the soul needed to be in balance. If they got out of balance, then you were in trouble. If your appetite part took over, then you might eat until you exploded, or you might never get out of bed. If you spent all of your time being rational and wise, then you might forget to eat and starve to death. If everything is in balance, he said, then you can lead a good and sensible life. If it's lunchtime, then it's a good time to obey your appetite and go ahead and eat. But if you're hungry in the middle of a school lesson or in the middle of the working day, your reason should tell you to wait until lunch and then your spirit will let you control yourself so that you can wait. Plato also thought a lot about the world and how it works. He thought that everything had an ideal form, and that real things were just bad copies of the ideal one. An actual chair was a sort of poor imitation of the ideal chair that existed only in the mind. 
One of the ways Plato tried to explain this idea was with the famous allegory of the cave. He said, Suppose there is a cave. Inside the cave are some men chained up to a wall, so they can only see the back wall of the cave and nothing else. They can't see anything outside the cave, but the sun throws shadows of what is going on outside on the back wall. These men probably think the shadows are real, and that is what real things look like. Suppose now that one of the men escaped and got out of the cave and saw what real things look like, like trees and grass. If he went back to the cave and told the other men what he had seen, would they believe him, or would they think he was crazy and try and kill him? Plato says that we are like those men sitting in the cave. We think we understand the real world, but because we are trapped in our bodies, we can only see the shadows on the wall. He said that philosophers were like the man who had escaped. He wanted the philosophers to help other people understand the real world better. Plato died in 347 BC, aged 82, around the time that his most famous student was tutoring the son of Philip II of Macedon. Aristotle was born in Macedonia in 384 BC. His father was the personal doctor for King Amintas III and Aristotle received a fantastic education. At the age of 18, he was sent to Athens to study at Plato's Academy. He stayed for 20 years. Then he went back to Macedon to be the personal tutor for Philip II's son, Alexander. After a few years teaching the future Alexander the Great, he returned to Athens and founded his own academy, which was called the Lyceum. While running his Lyceum, Aristotle wrote and wrote and wrote. His philosophy and thinking covered virtually everything that could be thought about. A lot of his thinking and writing was about what we now call science. Aristotle disagreed with Plato about how things were formed. He didn't believe that everything had an ideal form and that things he could see and touch were just bad copies. He thought he could learn and gain knowledge by studying natural objects. So that's what he did. He set out on a huge project to decide which animals were related to each other based on their characteristics. He classified animals into species based on those that had blood and those that did not. He thought that insects and creatures like them didn't have blood. He then split those animals with blood into two categories, which he called life-bearing and egg-bearing. Egg-bearing animals were birds and fish. Life-bearing were what we now call mammals. He further divided animals into whether they lived on land, in water or in the air. Aristotle's system for classifying animals wasn't very good by today's standards. He got quite a lot wrong. He would have had some difficulty in classifying frogs. And why was that? Well, frogs start off living in water and then progress to living on land, so which class do they fit into? We shouldn't criticise him for this, though. After all, he was the first person who even attempted to classify animals. Now we have a whole science devoted to seeing which animals are closely related to each other and which aren't. It's called taxonomy. Aristotle also believed that some animals were better than others. Animals which gave birth to their young were better than those that laid eggs. Humans, of course, were better than all other animals. He decided that all living things have souls, and that there were three types. One was responsible for growing and reproducing. One was responsible for getting around, for hearing, seeing and feeling. The last one was responsible for rational thinking. Plants, said Aristotle, only had the first type. Animals had the first two. Only humans had all three. Like some earlier Greeks, 
Aristotle thought everything was made up from the elements. He said, though, that there were five elements, not four. As well as earth, air, fire and water, there was a thing called ether, which made up everything outside the earth, such as the stars and planets. Aristotle was one of the first people who thought about what we now call ethics, which is to do with how people should behave. Aristotle reasoned that people wanted to be happy. This seems like a pretty good place to start. He thought that in order to be happy, people needed to behave, or as he called it, have virtue. Aristotle said that people had to decide to behave with virtue. They had to make a decision to do the right thing, and the right thing usually fell between two bad things. It is good to have confidence, for instance. Confidence is a virtue. But confidence is in the middle of cowardice and rashness, and people must choose to take that middle path. Can you think of any other examples? Aristotle said that people learned virtue by experience and being taught by philosophers, and the highest virtue was, of course, to be a philosopher. The great man wrote so many things that it is impossible for us to look at all of them. It is clear, though, that he was a very clever chap indeed. He is considered to be one of the greatest thinkers of all time. His thinking still influences people today, over 2,300 years later. Aristotle lived through the great rise of Macedon and died in 322 BC. After his death, many other philosophers came up with many different ideas. We will hear a little about some of them later on in our story. For now, though, it's time to get back to Philip and see how his planned invasion of Persia works out. And next week, we will do exactly that. Until then, have a great week, and I'll speak to you next time.